We are in the book of Revelation today. Last week, we started a series um, going over our, our vision and our values uh, as a church. And so last week, we looked at Colossians 1 to, to kind of give us a, a biblical framework um, to, to who we are as, as a local church. And so you can go online and listen to that if you, if you want to do that. Um, but one of the things that we, we, we learned last week from, from Colossians chapter 1 was we learned that God is invisible. But we also learned that the way that we see God is we look to Christ. So Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So what that means is that Jesus is the exact replica of God. So it's like when you take a photograph of yourself and you see that photograph, and it's the exact same image of you. That is what Jesus is. When we see Jesus, we see God. And because he's the image of God, Jesus is the image of God, the only way to know the God of the cosmos, which is out of reach for us, is out of reach in our own power, we have to look to Christ. Nowhere else will we find God, except in Christ. And the only way that we can look to Christ, because he's not physically here with us on this earth, the only way that we can look to Christ is in his word. And that's the first value that we have as a church, the word. So we have three values, word, community, and mission. And word is the first one. And and these values help us to live out the vision that we have of spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in Christ. So this is what one writer wrote. He said, one thing is necessary in our churches, hearing God's word through preaching, hearing God's word through the reading of the word, hearing God's word through singing, and hearing God's word through prayer. Which means, if we follow the logic of his statement, everything else, while, while everything else may be helpful, coffee and muffins, a book table, nursery, all the different things that we kind of do throughout the, out, out the week, while all of those things might be helpful, they are unnecessary. So that means everything that we do as a church must be motivated by and infused with the Word of God, or else it's not worth doing. And it begins right here. It begins right here in this pulpit, but it doesn't stop here. You don't just come here, you listen to a sermon, and then you just kind of move throughout your week. You should be using the Word of God throughout your week, throughout your days, moment by moment, day by day. You should be using it to build each other up in the truth. You should be using it to uh, rebuke one another and challenge one another. You should be using it to, to teach and disciple one another. You should be using the word to counsel and shepherd one another. You should be using the word to pray. You have a whole book dedicated to it in the Bible. It's called the Psalms. But I can say this, if, if you are not regularly in the word of God, if you're not regularly in the Bible, you cannot do any of this, none of it. Because you're, 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 you're either going to have nothing to say, according to the word, because you're not in it, or you're just going to wind up giving counsel that people want to hear and not what they need to hear, which is truth 
in love when it's shared from the Scriptures. Because the, the main point is the, the Word of God is what keeps us as a church. The Word of God does that. Not me, not anybody else in the room. It's the Word of God that keeps us as a church. And in our text today in Revelation, the author, John, shows us what it, what it looks like, uh, what a church looks like that keeps the Word of God. And so we're going to look at Revelation chapter 3. It's the very last book of the Bible, really easy to find. Revelation chapter 3. And remember, the, the, the bigger, bolder numbers, those are the chapter numbers. So if you turn to Revelation chapter 3, and then turn, you might have to turn over a page to come to verses 7 through 13. And those, those smaller uh, numbers are the verse numbers. So Revelation chapter 3, and I'll read for us verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let me pray. Father, we are so thankful that we have your word. Um, forgive us for neglecting it. Forgive us for taking it for granted. Um, remind us of what you tell us in the prophets that you, you can take this word away from us. You can give us a, you can give us a, a, a spiritual famine um, because we neglect your word. And so, God, I pray that we would um, dive deeply into your word today and that we would dive deeply into your word throughout our lives. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, well, let me give you some context to the book of Revelation because some of you uh, probably know, or, or the only thing you know about Revelation is that it's the last book of the Bible. So that, that might be one thing that you know. Others of you know a bit more. You know that it has to do with, with last things, the, uh, the end of the world, the apocalypse, and which either really interests you or it really scares you. Some of you may have gotten excited because I said turn to Revelation, or some of you are like, whoa, this is, I don't, I'm not ready for this. But either way, it may not be the first book of the Bible that you turn to when wanting to learn what it means to be uh, a faithful church or, to, or a church that values the Word of God. But actually, it's exactly what the book of Revelation is about. So in the midst of angels and dragons and fire and judgment, this is all in Revelation, this is the message that lies within 
this book of the Bible. Because Revelation allows us to see the unseen spiritual battle that the church is engaged in. And that is a battle that we are currently real-time engaged in. And Revelation allows us to kind of see that with our imagination. This is how one commentator put it. He says, when one encounters the book of Revelation, they are not carried into some never-never land of fancy, meaning this is not a fantasy book. This is not, this is not just fiction, but into the ever-ever land of God's eternal values and judgments. So John is taking us into the reality of God's eternal values and judgments. And in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, these eternal values and judgments are held up first and foremost not to the world. Jesus isn't coming in and saying, whoa, look how, look how evil the world is and how bad they have been. We're going to do something about this. Although he does get to that. The first people that he holds these things up to is the church. So in chapter 2 and 3, you have seven short letters to seven real churches. These are real churches that really existed. But we can also say that they are letters that are written to us as well. They are not, they're not irrelevant just because we're looking at them uh, thousands of years later. They are relevant to Christ the King Church in the year 2020. So all seven of these letters take on a similar pattern, okay? So they all have a greeting. They all have a title. They all have a diagnosis, which is either positive or negative. And so you have Jesus coming in. So if you're looking at your Bible and you have uh, the red letter edition, you'll see that those two chapters are covered in red. This is Jesus speaking to the church. So you have a diagnosis from Jesus, which is either positive or negative, where Jesus says to the church, I know this about you, dot, dot, dot. And then with the exception of two churches, he has a criticism. So Smyrna and Philadelphia are the exception. And then, they ha- then there's an assurance or a command, and then you have a promise. And so that's, that's, how, that's how Jesus does it throughout all seven churches. And so in these seven letters, John is letting us know what a faithful church looks like. And we learn that it's a church, at the end of the day, it's a church that keeps the word of God. And when keeping the word, you see three realities that are true of a church like this. And these are our three points for our outline, and they're in your worship guide if you uh, take notes. The first is it keeps you faithful to Jesus. The second is it keeps you in the love of Jesus. And the third is it keeps you steadfast to Jesus. So first, it keeps you faithful to Jesus. Look at verses 7 and 8 in our text. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So in the very first verse, in verse 7, There is no doubt who it is that is doing the speaking here. 
Jesus himself is directly addressing the church here. He is the one who is who, who does the opening here that you hear uh, repeated over and over again because he is the one who holds the key of David. And so what this means is that Jesus is the one who has authority and the only one who has the authority to admit or exclude from God's kingdom. And no one can reverse that. So what's he telling us? Well, in verse 8, he's telling us what he knows about the church in Philadelphia. And just to be clear, because I'm sure there's one or two of you that are like, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? No, it's, it's Philadelphia in Asia at this particular time is the church that he's talking about here. But Jesus is saying he knows something specific about the church in Philadelphia. And that, that specific thing that he knows is the work of the church in Philadelphia. So this just lets us know that Jesus' eye is ever upon us as a church as well. We are not exempt from his vision. So which should remind us, we don't live autonomously as a church uh, in the year 2020, where we can just kind of do whatever meets our fancy or to scratch the itching ears that we may have or, or the people that we may encounter on a given week. One day... Jesus will judge our work as well. You could just replace the church in Philadelphia with the church in Augusta, Georgia, and read it out. But that shouldn't leave us frozen in fear because of what Jesus says next to the church. He says, I have opened the door for you, which simply means the access to Jesus is open to the church. So part of the persecution the church was experiencing during this particular time um, was an exclusion from the synagogue by the Jews. So the Jews were looking at these men and women and children who were calling themselves Christians and following this man Jesus, and they were saying, you have no part of this earthly spirituality that we have a part of. So the door to the main place of worship on earth, the synagogue, was literally shut to the Christians. So they had no physical place that they could go and worship. They were excluded. They were outcasts in the culture. They were spiritual orphans, you could say. But Jesus says to them, my door... Access to me is always open to you. It's always open to you. So even though you have little power, so that Jesus, Jesus says that specifically to this church, you have little power. You are, you are essentially in the world's eyes insignificant. And according to some, some research that was done here, this church in Philadelphia was actually pretty small. It wasn't some large megachurch that you see on on the city corners. This was a small congregation, and they had little power. They were not much to look at. They were underwhelming. But Jesus says, you have access to the king of the cosmos. And that access, that open door will never be shut by anyone. You will always have this access. It's just a reminder from the scriptures that no one, no one has the power 
to snatch you from the hand of God. No one has that power. And no one has the power to shut the access that you have to Jesus off. No one does. And so the way that we see that Jesus can confirm this knowledge that he has about the church in Philadelphia is in two ways. He, he says it here in, in these two verses. He says, one, they have kept his word. So they have kept the Bible. That's Jesus' word. And then number two derives from number one. So apart from number one, you don't have number two. But, it, but the second thing is they haven't denied Jesus' name. So in the face of persecution, in the face of being ex- excluded from the synagogue and this spiritual or this uh, literal physical place of worship, they have not denied the name of Christ because they have kept his word. And they believe the promises are true for them as well. So this word, just to give you a technical Greek definition, and I know my language guys will appreciate this, but this word kept means to attend carefully. It means to take care of, to guard. So think about tending a garden. You're taking care of that garden carefully. You have to to make sure it's watered correctly. You have to make sure that no animals can get in it. So you, you protect it and you guard it. You take care of it. Jesus is bearing witness to the Philadelphians' careful attending of the Word of God. He's bearing witness to their care of the Scriptures. He's bearing witness to their guardianship of the Bible. And this is what Jesus says keeps them faithful. Now, we could say these two verses in our text are dealing with life in real time for the church in Philadelphia. It's happening currently. They are currently being faithful to keep the Word of God. They are currently being faithful and not denying Jesus' name in the face of persecution. So let me say this strongly that and pastorally. Apart from the Word of God, according to this text, apart from the Word of God, you will not be faithful to Jesus in real time. You will not be faithful to Jesus. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if we had every kind of ministry to meet every one of your individual needs. That if we were, if we were that powerful that we could just hone in on those things for you and just meet every single one of your individual needs. No matter what it is, we, we, got, we have something set up for you. Or it doesn't matter if we have, no offense to our musicians, the best musicians in the world playing just world-class music up on this stage and everything was crisp and everything sounded perfectly and we had all the, every kind of smoke and light show that you could imagine that could just set your emotions on fire. It doesn't matter if we have all of that, that apart from the Word of God, nothing else will keep you faithful to Jesus. It doesn't matter how you feel. Nothing will keep you faithful to Jesus apart from His Word. So there's no magic pill that you need to be waiting on that is all of a sudden going to give you spiritual maturity overnight and understanding of God's Word. There's there's nothing that's coming that way. There's no activity or program that we could invent or make up with that's just going to make all of this click for you. It's the Word of God alone. That's it. 
Well, the second reality of keeping the word is that it keeps you in the love of Jesus. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, here in verse 9, Jesus is using strong language to bring up the very real fact about the church's persecutors. Because you've got to think, the church in Philadelphia was probably looking at the Jews going, well, man, they are, they are pretty spiritual. They are, they're Jewish, and we're Jewish, and you're Jewish Christians. And so they have the keys to the synagogue. They're not letting us in. There may be something wrong here with us. There, I mean, we're not, we're not large in number. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of breaking down here a little bit. But Jesus kind of brings these words of comfort to them and says, look, they are the synagogue of Satan. They are doing the work of the devil. And so Jesus brings these words of comfort to the church by saying that these will bow down before the feet of those with little power. And Jesus will make them bow down. Now, this doesn't mean that now the church has this kind of one-upmanship on the, the synagogue of Satan and they can kind of gloat and say, look at that, we won, we have Jesus on our side, you don't. Boom, we got this. It's, it's all about us. The church is not now playing the powerful one, and the Jews now are playing the weak ones. It simply means that Jesus keeps them in his love. If you notice there, he tells them that plainly. He doesn't, he doesn't boast about this church or anything about it. He kind of brings it down saying they're small in number and, and actually kind of insignificant. But Jesus says to them, I will make them come and bow down, and this is what they will learn from this, that I have loved you. This is what they'll learn, that I have loved you. So this is the cycle of the gospel that we see here. We, we have, a, we have a, say, a God who loves us in Christ so much that he sent his only son to die for our sins. That's love, that he would do that. And so that sort of love, when we can kind of grasp it, even on a small, a small scale, keeps us in his word. I mean, we want to know somebody who loves us like that, don't we? We want to know somebody who loves us like that. And so when we are kept in his word, we, that then reminds us even more as you read the Bible. And sometimes it will take a minute. But it reminds us over and over and over again that Jesus loves us. That's the truth of the scriptures. That's the thread that holds it all together is Jesus's love for his church, for his people. And then it just causes us to keep the word even more, which is to say that keeping the word keeps you in the love of Jesus. Because you're going to have a lot of things thrown at you in your life. You're going to have lots of people who say, I don't love you or treat you like they don't love you, or whatever. But Jesus never does that, ever. He's always faithful to his love uh, for his people. Now, if you're not keeping God's word, you won't know the love of Jesus when you see it. 
Because the love of Jesus does not always come in, in, in just kind of a feel-good mentality where everything's kind of hype and everything's going my way and I have enough money in the bank and my job's clicking along just nicely and I have all these friends and nobody's upset with me and you know my marriage is great and all of those things are good. And you'll miss the love of Jesus if you're not keeping God's word because you'll assume that when you suffer, you'll assume it's some, some kind of sick joke that God is playing on you? Why would, he, why, would he, why would he take my child from me? Or why would he allow my, my spouse to leave me? Or why would he allow me not to have friends at this season in my life? And you'll begin to grow cynical. And you'll begin to grow even more anxious. And darkness will settle upon you in ways you've never imagined it would. Simply because you're not reminding yourself from God's word of Jesus' love and care for you. So let me remind you, let me read you Jesus' words in John, from John 15, verses 1 through 10. You can turn there if you want. The Gospel of John. It's, uh, I'm sure, a familiar pas- passage to most. But this is John, or uh, Jesus speaking to us, or reminding us this. I am the true vine, And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." And listen if you haven't been listening thus far. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in me. If you keep my commands, if you keep my word, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Well, the third reality of keeping the word is that it keeps you steadfast to Jesus. Look at verses 10 through 12. Jesus says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. Now, for some of you English buffs, you may have recognized already that steadfast is a synonym for faithful, and you'd be right on that, so not, I'm not being redundant here, but, but I want to show, uh, show this using a different word other than faithful, is that not only does God's word keep us faithful right now in this moment in real time, but that it keeps us steadfast until the very end. 
So we can kind of think real time right now. You're going to get out of here in just a few minutes, and you can think, like, God is keeping me now. But what about the future? What about those things that we're not aware of yet? And God is saying that as you keep his word, he will keep you steadfast in those moments that we are not currently aware of. And those can be negative or positive, and those things are coming. So in verse 10, he promises to those who've kept his word that he will keep them from the hour of trial, which sounds very Revelation-esque and uh, very much like, what is he talking about here? But this hour of trial, you can think of it as a court trial. Jesus is saying, one day, everyone on the face of the planet, dead or alive, they are going to be judged. They are going to be brought before the great judge, and their works are going to be weighed before him. And so Jesus says to the church, to those who are faithfully keeping his word, that he is going to keep them from the hour of trial. Now, that doesn't mean they're not going to be judged. What that means is that they have already been declared not guilty. Already been declared not guilty. The judgment has already been made. And this is why. Because through, keeping, through their keeping of the word of God, they have professed their trust and belief in the promises of Jesus. So the word of God is what, is what keeps you holding fast to Jesus until the very end of time. So then you have this amazing promise in verse 12. Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So let me just give you a quick background. The, the, the city of Philadelphia it was a city that was known for earthquakes, so it was often, it was often pretty shaky in this place, pun intended there completely. So they had, they had little, they had little um, uh, physical stability in this particular place. They knew what that felt like to be unstable in that, in that particular way. And then here you have those with little power being told by Jesus that they are going to be made into strong pillars that will never be shaken. They'll never be moved. They'll never be um, uh, taken out of the house of God, the house of worship. They will always be there, so much so that they will hold the place up. So you have those who've been barred from the earthly temple being made into what holds up the heavenly temple. And then you also have in Philly... Uh, you have uh, quite a few name changes of this city. They weren't always the city of Philadelphia. Uh, when they got a new king or they wanted to, to kind of uh, uh, start a new initiative, they would name a city a different name that kind of uh, held on to that value of what they wanted to do. So their name got changed a lot. So they, had, they experienced an identity instability as well in this city. And so here you have Christ the king coming along and saying, I'm going to give you a new name the new Jerusalem. I'm going to give you this name that is the name of my 
God. And that is your identity now. And no one can take that away from you. So this is the promise that Jesus gives to the church that keeps his word. So, I know it's hot in here. I guess this is the, uh, one of the curses of being in a school. <laughs> I'm sweating. Um, but how do, I want to ask this question as an application. Just be very practical here. How does one hold fast to God's word? You might be asking that, that, that question to yourself. And I want to I point you to uh, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. And I just want you to jot that reference down if you're taking notes. You don't have to turn there. Ezra chapter 7, and I came across this verse again in my Bible reading for this year. But it says this. It says, for Ezra, who was a prophet, Ezra had set his heart. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statues and rules in Israel. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do the law of the Lord, and to teach the law of the Lord. So the first thing that Ezra does here is he sets his heart. He, he makes the decision to do something. So think of, think of all your New Year resolutions that you have come up with that were two weeks in, which has probably already fallen off the wayside, let's just be honest. But think of those New Year resolutions that you wanted to keep uh, January 1, You're setting your heart to do something. You're setting your heart to lose weight. You're setting your heart to exercise more. You're setting your heart to spend less time on social media or whatever you may have done this year. And so what do you do when you set your heart to these things? Well, you begin to take steps to accomplish these goals. So you delete your Instagram. You put restrictions on your diet. You make a decision to run a mile a week or go to the gym. But for Ezra, he sets his heart to do three things. And they're all centered around the word of God. To study God's word, to do God's word, and to teach God's word. Okay? So if you're taking notes, I'd I'd love for you to write that down. To study it, to do it, and to teach it. So... Asking yourself this question about studying God's word, what are you going to do to keep God's word? What are you going to do? What is your plan? Maybe it's to read through the Bible in a year. Maybe it's to just read through the New Testament. Maybe it's just to read, you know, just a chapter uh, a day or something simple that you're, that you're trying to do. Maybe you are. Maybe you're going to dig into a particular book of the Bible that you've been wanting to dig into. Whatever it is, Have a plan and set your heart to keep it. And then to do it, how are you going to apply it? How are you going to respond to God's word? What does that look like? That could look differently for lots of people. How are you going to respond to God's word? And then lastly, which is one you probably don't really think about a whole lot, at least I don't uh, personally, but um, who are you going to give it away to? So to study it, to do it, and to teach it. So maybe that's, maybe that's to your children. And I actually, I hope that if you have a family, I hope that's to your children. I hope, I hope you dads will take up, take up that, that reign and, and, and disciple your children and lead your family according to the Scriptures. That is, the, that is an obvious application there for you. 
Or, or maybe it's the people that you meet with in your smaller groups, in your DNA, and you want to you teach more. You want to dig into God's Word more. Or, or maybe you want to lead a Bible study in your neighborhood or do something like that. Whatever it is, have a plan and set your heart to do it. So let me close by pointing us to verse 13. Jesus says, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So in all seven of the letters to the churches, whether Jesus is rebuking them or calling them out on their sin or he's encouraging them and saying, this is what you have done well, continue on in this, Jesus repeats these words over and over and over again. If you have ears, listen. If you have ears, listen. So I don't know if you've ever had a, if you've ever met with a friend or if you or, or or your parents or whatever who they've tried to give you advice on something, and you know they have the wisdom, uh, especially if it's a parent, children. You know they have the wisdom to back up what they are saying. Sometimes I don't believe my children uh, think that I was ever a teenager, or lived through some of the things that they lived through. But you know they have the wisdom to back it up what they're saying. But in your pride. You just nod your head and smile, knowing you will never apply what they are saying. Even though, even though you know it would change your life, without a doubt. This is what's happening in our text today. Jesus is giving us eternal wisdom. He's saying to us, the door to me is open to you, and you can either walk through it or not. So if we choose to ignore it, if we choose not to walk through the door, it will be devastating to you individually, but it will also be devastating to the church corporately. I told somebody this week that if I ever uh, get away from preaching the Bible, and you, and you begin to see that I'm just preaching this, I'm getting up on my um, uh, soapbox every Sunday, or I'm just up here just trying to entertain you guys, just leave. Just, I'm serious, just leave. I have gone crazy. I'm like Dumbledore uh, drinking the water out of the Horcrux. Like, just get out of Dodge. This is what I want you to listen to as, as a church, as Christ the King Church. Let us not be a people who neglect to walk through the door that Jesus opened to us. But instead, a people who keep his word to the very end. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, may the full counsel of your word be steeped into our hearts and minds. I pray that your word would keep us uh, in your love, that we would be reminded over and over and over again of Christ's love for us because we have been a people who have kept your word. And that would be what's most important uh, in this church until the very end. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.